0: You're listening to Podgnosis, the pulse of the healthcare industry. I'm Teresa Carey. Monday was Juneteenth, and everyone here at Fierce was off for the day, encouraged to honor the holiday in our own way with our families and local communities. So that's exactly what I did. And so this week, instead of getting a fresh new episode of Podnosis, I've selected two of my favorite segments that I don't think you should miss. These are from the fall of 2022, and I'm going to replay them right now. The COVID-19 pandemic has drawn attention to longstanding health inequities. Data shows that Hispanic and Black people are about twice as likely to die from COVID-19 as their white counterparts. This is because of structural inequalities, racial bias, or the racial empathy gap, and access to healthcare that is simply inequitable. Oftentimes, healthcare resources are inadequate in Black neighborhoods because of a history of redlining and other discriminatory practices. And work conditions may make minorities more exposed to the virus. For example, many people of color depend on public transportation to get to work or are employed at jobs that were considered essential. As the healthcare industry continues to adjust to a new post-COVID-19 normal, there has been significant momentum behind addressing health equity challenges. With this backdrop, Humana, one of the country's largest insurers, hired its first chief health equity officer in 2021, Dr. Wando Oleola. Fierce Healthcare Senior Editor Paige Minimeyer, sat down with Dr. Oleola to discuss health equity and if there is a risk the momentum around this issue could
1: slow. Glad to have you join us. Um, as, as we heard, you know, when you were hired at Humana, the the company kind of said it created your role to, to identify and track health equity challenges, particularly as, as underscored by COVID. Um, you know, and so far in, in your job, have there been any surprises that, that you weren't kind of expecting? And do you think maybe your role would be different had, had COVID not been in the mix when, when you were hired?
2: Yeah, you know, I, I started my role... As Chief Health Equity Officer at Humana in April of 2021. One of the things I knew coming into the role was that we were in the middle of something that was so much bigger than any one company and bigger than any one organization, and that I would probably have to do a couple things. One, make sure that the, the people who already understood how important health inequity was on our Society and how health inequities were a reflection of larger social challenges. I'd have to I'd have to make sure that people that knew that felt that this role and this work was going to be a potential solution, um, or at least help us get to the path of solutions. But I also knew that I'd have to figure out how to make sure that the people who hadn't bought in to that connection between you know health and justice and health. Inequity and social injustice that hadn't bought into that, that I'd have to figure out how to how to get them on board. So, you know, I would say doing that in the middle of a pandemic when people were isolated or working differently, working in in, in different ways, and didn't necessarily have the same tactile opportunity to to make connections and to build bridges and things like that. Trying to do that was was pretty difficult. How do you build you know, a body of work and kind of an army of supporters around the work when you can't really see them face to face or or kind of be in the same places to kind of pressure right. some of the ideas.
1: And, you know, Humana is a huge health plan, certainly one of the largest in the country and one that our readers watch very closely for kind of cutting edge ideas and a new new innovations. I mean, how are you thinking about the role of an insurer in tackling some of these equity challenges? And where do you kind of see your place in that?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. I feel like when you're thinking about health equity from a, from a large kind of ecosystem perspective, there are a couple of ways that you can influence it. One is through legislative uh, decisions. Um, and one is through kind of financial and in- payment decisions. There are probably many others, but I, I think that those are like kind of some, some big ones. And so from the how you finance and and what you finance and kind of what you pay for. I think we have a great opportunity because we can, we can build in creative ways to finance, if you will, healthy behaviors, healthy opportunities, um, things that, that really impact how people experience health or how they, how they don't experience good health. And so for example, we have, um, payment design opportunities as as a plan. We can say you know we know that there are so many things that impact your ability to have good health like your social needs and things that that are much more important than sometimes medication or office visits or clinical encounters are things like you know those social drivers social determinants of health like housing and having healthy food and things like that. So we we are doing a lot of work to Integrate what we believe are important social needs that influence health through, like, product design and the benefits that we offer to our members, like healthy food cards or providing housing support or providing access to transportation. You know, we we are doing a lot of work around building a really um, highly integrated, culturally competent, culturally humble workforce, and you have the opportunity to do that when you're also the provider because you can you can help shape the way people interact with. With the patient, um, and and make sure that you are giving people the opportunity to have really robust, um, sensitive, culturally sensitive experiences. You can also see what needs they have, kind of in real time as it relates to their very specific um, clinical diagnoses or or conditions. So when our when a when a patient comes to one of our clinics and they they've got uh, a, a unique situation, you know, they're maybe a, a, a patient, but, but accompanied by a caregiver who also knows some of the other challenges that their, you know, that their, their p- parents or their loved one might be facing and is aware of those social needs and they need some help navigating the system, we can offer them something in that moment um, that actually speaks very directly to the needs that they have. We just got a lot of opportunity, both delivering care, but also kind of financing care.
1: Um, you know, you just touched on center which I know is a, a key priority at Humana right now. Humana is also the bulk of their membership is in in Medicare. So all these kind of senior focused services. How do you think about these equity challenges maybe from through the lens of treating seniors? Is there, you know, unique challenges to that? Do you have to kind of craft messaging specifically for that audience that's maybe a little different than other yeah. patient populations?
2: Great question. Yeah, so you know Medicare, and we're we're specifically uh, in the Medicare Advantage space, and uh, you know the Medicare Advantage program is is a really powerful way to give choice to America's seniors and and think about healthcare holistically. Because what it does is it says, okay, you here are some of the constructs of Medicare and 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 kind of fee for service, and how do you um, what do we expect that you will give, and then you decide how to give it and essentially you're you're allowing us to have the opportunity to create and demonstrate value through the Medicare advantage option. <clears throat> so what we're able to do and what you've seen with Medicare advantage plans um is you that you're able to be a little bit more creative in the way you deliver that care. You've got this this charge of delivering good care to to seniors but you can be creative in how you think about what that looks like. And typically the Medicare advantage plans are more accessible so what that means for us is when you think about um African American black, Hispanic Latinx, um, seniors with disabilities, you know, they're they're they tend to choose Medicare Advantage plans more than than the fee for service um traditional Medicare. And so what that means is that you have to really think creatively about how do you take care of of those populations that have the combination of those intersections. So they're not only seniors, but they're also of, you know, racial and ethnic minority um backgrounds or they have um disabilities that make, you know, you know, care consideration important, you have to basically, your innovation requires the consideration of that population. And so that's how, if, if you're not doing things that are going to address some of the social and structural uh, determinants of health, you're not going to be able to have a really successful MA plan because your population really does require that, you, that you're that you focused on that. So I, I don't think it's it, it's an accident that, you know, we have You know, a a large, very large Medicare Advantage population, but we also have this very strong commitment to health equity because it—the population is really dictating that this work is is important. People have different types of experiences, no matter what their age is. So we have to be really thoughtful about like what what do our members want, what do they need, and so we ask them, and we 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 ask. We have a lot lot of questions. We you know in 2020, we you know during the height of the pandemic, we did like six million social needs screenings trying to understand from our members like what are the things that are are stressing you what are the things that are standing in your way of good health and we we learned a lot from doing that you know where where we might have thought for sure during the pandemic things like um you know food insecurity were problems it's certainly they certainly were and food insecurity remained a big problem after the pandemic But be also uncovered by doing that by asking you know that social isolation and loneliness were huge factors in how people were, were, were kind of thriving or not during the pandemic. And so it, it made us think we have got to start to care for those things. And so I think that just thinking of seniors as a monolith is, is, is a mistake. R- recognizing the unique needs of seniors and also increasingly how MA plans are, are capturing the attention of diverse seniors um, allows us to be much more nimble and creative and, and requires us to be much more sensitive to the needs of different populations.
1: Certainly equity is a, a key topic in the industry right now coming out of COVID, but kind of alongside that, um, there's been a huge increase in the use and interest in virtual health and in digital tools. Um, I know a topic that's kind of near and dear to your heart is, is tech equity and kind of addressing the, the intersection of those issues. Um, I don't know if you could just kind of define that for us and also maybe take, it, take us through how Humana is thinking about that.
2: Yeah. Well, I think that whenever you're dealing with a major boom um, in an industry or, or in a field in a sector, there's a lot of excitement about it. You've got to be really careful that while you're, when you have kind of baseline disparities and you have inequities that are rooted in kind of social, structural, policy things like racism and poverty and discrimination and and where people live, um, you have to be really careful that you're also caring for, you know, a big advancement, not Widening disparities or inequities that exist, and so when you think about tech, tech, technology-focused equity and and tech equity, as you and specifically as it's become more more well understood during because of the pandemic, the COVID nineteen pandemic, we have to we we had to kind of leverage technology to keep people healthy, to keep kids educated, to you know to keep commerce alive. We had to we had to do it, but if you don't have some of the fundamental things that are essential for realizing the opportunity of that technology, then you don't have what we consider equity, which is equity in the way technology is used, applied, and experienced. And so a perfect example is when you are um, working with uh, some work that I did actually before I came to Humana, we were looking at you know, we needed to empower patients at the Ohio State University in our catchment area in central Ohio and some of our more underserved um, locations with technology tools to actually interact with with healthcare and be able to do telehealth visits and be able to do that. But what we found was that, we found out that a lot of times they didn't have broadband in those areas. They were really poor, you know, broadband service areas, or they didn't have the right hardware um, or software to support that work. And so you realize that we can do all we want on the clinician side. I can set up all my clinics like I did to be able to deliver telehealth and we've got the great equipment, we've got workflows, we've got all these things figured out. But if people cannot access them because they don't have some of what I consider also important social determinants of health, broadband access, hardware access to interact, then you have just worsened that digital divide. You have not kind of empowered equity. So being able to really be thoughtful about how do you make sure as you're advancing any any sort of advance, but be, in this case, technology, as you are advancing technology, you are also very much paying attention to how those that have been made more vulnerable or more disenfranchised are able to access that solution as well. And so that requires just really rethinking the way you deliver it and, and assuring that there's some foundational things that allow people to experience and use the technology.
1: Um, we've touched a couple times now on you know, the fact that there's a lot of momentum behind equity right now, you know, coming out of COVID or hopefully coming out of COVID maybe. <laughs> uh, you know, as we close, I don't know if maybe you could just offer some advice to to your peers in the industry about what we can do to kind of make sure this conversation stay, stays central t- to healthcare and that we don't kind of back off on some of this energy that we have around equity.
2: I'm so glad you asked that because I, I do fear that, where, you know, you've got these great windows of opportunity where there's a lot of attention and energy and, you know, for, for, for good or for bad backlash against kind of the status quo and what we had been doing. And then when that window closes, you lose the the interest or you shift gears to something else that so, so seems more important at the time. And I, I, I am always worried that that could happen here. I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that it won't because, I think people are understanding that, you know, I I feel like the 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 COVID nineteen pandemic and, you know, if, if if nothing else, it showed us how important globally, um, how, how much we are connected globally and how important the health is of people across the world in our own health in our in our particular environment where, you know, one person coughing in Sweden or in Bangladesh has implications on me in Central Ohio, and I think we have hopefully really understood that that it is in our best interests as a society, whether that's nationally or internationally, to to allow allow and empower everyone to have their best health because we will feel the 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 impact of them not having it. And I hope that we'll still believe that and we won't get back into our kind of our own silos where, you know, only the health of our immediate home (laughs) matters to us um, and nothing, nothing more. I think we, I think we will. And there are a few things that I'm seeing that make me feel like this is this, there's some staying power here. One is that I think we, we, we're speaking differently. Like we are, we are, people are, are very much, I remember years ago having conversations with people um, about kind of the bringing social drivers and social needs conversations into primary care. And I remember being at this meeting vividly standing up at this conversation in San Francisco. I was talking and someone stood up and says to me, like, I don't know why we think that it's important for healthcare to now be social workers. And there was this huge conversation that ensued following that. People just were like, I don't get why she's up here saying that we need to have, we need to be thinking about and responding to and addressing social needs in in healthcare. Like it doesn't fit here. Let the social workers do that let the community-based organizations do that. Why are we even having this conversation? Well, I think that, you know, fast forward almost, cause that was like, I think that was like 2013 or so fast forward in almost a decade. And we are, we, we get it. Like at every healthcare organization that I know of, whether it's an academic institution, a large plan, you know, the clinical delivery environment, people get it. Like they believe like, we cannot. We can only go so far taking care of people and giving them their kind of opportunity to achieve their best health without addressing their social needs or things like structural racism or things like poverty or things like literacy. Like we, we, we realize we can only go so far without doing that. And now we are having a conversation that is really not starting from why is it even here. It's like how do we do it well in this environment? And so I believe that those kind of things give me hope that this has this has staying power. That we will realize that the you know that truly if we don't have if we don't have people who have been on the margins who have been disenfranchised if we don't move them into the center and have their healthcare be prioritized that we will all feel the repercussions of that in some way
1: great well thank you so much for joining us and sharing your insights today
2: that was Dr. Olewala. she will
0: be the keynote speaker at the upcoming Fierce Health Payor Summit so to register for that event Go to com, and I'll put that link in our show notes. Where people live, where they learn, where they work, and where they play, these factors are known as social determinants of health. And believe it or not, they drive up to 70% of health outcomes. They impact access to nutritious food or safe housing. Social determinants have always existed. But it wasn't until recently that the federal government officially decided to measure them. Last year, the Physicians Foundation published a comprehensive framework for addressing social determinants. They proposed quality measures to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Those measures were approved in August, becoming the first time social drivers are recognized in federal payment programs. As of 2023, participating hospitals will be required to report what portion of their population is screened for social drivers and how many screen positive for each kind. Next, we'll hear from Fierce Healthcare's Anastasia Glodkowskia, talking with Gary Price, president of the Physicians Foundation.
3: Hi, Gary. Thanks for being here
0: today.
4: Thank you for allowing me to join you, Anastasia.
3: Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you about this. So, For years, clinicians have witnessed firsthand the effects social determinants have on their patients' health and well-being, but many feel they're not equipped to address them alone. In recent years, there has been a growing effort from a number of stakeholders to help raise awareness about social needs and the resources that are available to marginalized communities. Can you explain the different components required to really understand and be able to address social needs in a patient population? I mean, why has it been so difficult to do up until this point?
4: I think basically uh, those of us on the front lines have had to pretend that those issues weren't really there because we weren't equipped uh, either with resources or the time to deal with them. And uh, if you can imagine in the crisis, uh, for instance, of an emergency room environment, uh, trying to figure out all the different circumstances that led someone to end up in the emergency room with a, a health crisis that could have been avoided because of their social environment. Um, there just is no time to address that. So in a way, I think um, we've been fighting the battle to improve our nation's health care on the front lines, but we've been forced to sort of ignore the fact that one of the biggest obstacles to improving that doesn't really have to do with the medicines or treatments we give when the health problem becomes a crisis. I think to truly understand and to move the ball on this issue, I think all of us now recognize that first of all, we have to have good data on what exactly the role that social drivers of health are playing in our nation's health. And to get good data about where the inflection points are that we can deal with that upstream and really make a difference in patients' health outcomes and reduce the, the cost of the care they require, but also improve the quality of the care we provide.
3: Mm-hmm. So you're saying the first step uh, is to collect data and to better understand the needs of a given patient population, and from there then equip clinicians to be able to refer patients out to, for example, community-based organizations that can address those needs?
4: Yes, that's part of it. I think we need to identify exactly what role each one of um, social drivers of health play in given health outcomes, and that requires... a just an enormous amount of data that we don't have right now and having that data first would enable us to come up with proposed solutions and then gather data on how the the different proposed solutions actually impact uh, healthcare in the end and so uh, we're really at the very beginning of this as far as healthcare goes.
3: Mm -hmm. And and you mentioned something you know In the early days of your medical training, and and, um, for a while now, for many years, uh, physicians were not equipped to even think about these issues because of the, you know, the chaos and the stress of their daily jobs, whether that's in the emergency room or, you know, at a practice. Do you think that trainings in medical schools or during residencies have changed over time, and now perhaps encourage uh, students? to look at patients' social needs?
4: I think there has been a trend, uh, a movement to consider the impact of more global public health issues on healthcare in the last uh, 30 years since I graduated from medical school. And I think that's one of the factors that's led us to a point now where, where we're deciding to confront those issues. I think the horrible spotlight that the COVID epidemic cast on health equity in our country uh, also provided an opportunity for us to begin to take an unflinching look at how social circumstances affect the health of our country and and contribute to those inequities. I I think there have been a number of converging forces that have brought us to this point.
3: Absolutely, and I wanted to home in on that for a second. Uh, can you explain a bit more how uh, social determinants affect healthcare costs, and um, how addressing these these needs might actually reduce healthcare costs?
4: It's totally obvious to anyone working in any setting in healthcare, be it a medical student, a resident, practicing physician, or anyone else working on the front lines, that social circumstances contribute in a huge way to how well our healthcare system works for patients. It's been obvious to us just in our daily experiences that people who have large social drivers of health needs, if you will, uh, they come in sicker, they don't do as well, and they're seen more often in crisis in our healthcare system than they are in any sort of health maintenance or preventative way. As I said before, we've uh, more or less been wearing blinders to those things even though we know they're out there because we really didn't have the time or the resources to deal with them. Um, the, the simple ways things can impact if you if you can't afford transportation to the portal of entry for your healthcare system because it's too far away or you can't afford to miss a day of work or you can't leave your children uh, right away, you're at a disadvantage. If you're trying to manage your diabetes, yet you really don't have access uh, easily to a source of healthy food, uh, obviously your diabetes is going to be much harder to manage. If you don't have the economic resources uh, that lead you to have to make a choice between feeding your family or, or buying an expensive medication, uh, you, you've got a huge disadvantage to someone who does have those sorts of economic resources. So, those are just simple things that can create tremendous barriers to patients in maintaining their health and also preventing uh, health problems from becoming worse.
3: Right. Absolutely. That makes sense. In the past, the Physicians Foundation has run surveys of doctors to get their thoughts on how they feel about being able to address social determinants in their patients and in some of the latest surveys you put out this year, doctors said they felt quite burnt out. Can you explain why that is?
4: Uh, certainly. The the foundation has been interested in both physician well-being and uh, social drivers of health for more than a decade. But in uh, our 2022 survey of physicians in uh, part one of three, We looked uh, specifically at the impact of social drivers of health and physicians' perception of those. and What what we did find, as as you mentioned, that uh, 60% of physicians reported that their frustration in seeing the effect of drivers of health on their patients and attempting to somehow ameliorate that contributed to their feelings of burnout, a, a really significant number. To me, that just is a, it's a, uh, a graphic representation of the fact that drivers of health are, health are out there as a, as a problem for our patients. Our physicians see the problem, but at the current time, they're very frustrated in trying to deal with it.
3: Mm-hmm. And what are the consequences of that frustration?
4: Well, the the most important consequence is that the patient's uh, needs to get them into an optimum state of health aren't met. The second consequence is the symptoms of burnout, which uh, the majority of our physicians are facing, and they're facing it in larger numbers than before the COVID uh, epidemic. Uh, That's getting worse, and it's not being addressed. So we mm-hmm. view addressing social drivers of health as a way of trying to ameliorate one of the frustrations that our physicians have to deal with. It's it's really very simple. Physicians uh, get frustrated when they see a problem that uh, they're responsible for in the measurement of uh, the outcome of their patient's health, but they really can't do anything about it.
3: Yeah, of course. That must be extremely frustrating, especially given the Hippocratic Oath to do no harm and to help patients get better and healthier. So let's turn to talking now about the recent measure set proposed by the Physicians Foundation that was accepted by CMS. Um, What do you think is the potential for impact here?
4: Oh, I think the potential for impact is tremendous, uh, Anastasio. I I really think the incorporation of these uh, very simple and basic measures, uh, it represents a, an inflection point in our approach to healthcare in our country. It's the first time the, a federal program, and, it, and this particular federal program is the largest insurer of healthcare in our country, but it's the first time that any sort of uh, objective data is being collected at the, the point of patient care. About social drivers of health. I I mentioned that they're very simple. I think they are a very basic first step, but it's a critical step in beginning to deal with the impact of social drivers on our nation's health.
3: I think that's a great point and maybe a good place for us to discuss some of the top priorities that we as a nation can have to help move the needle on this, to really start addressing social determinants of health, improving. The health of everybody, but especially marginalized communities. Can you talk about perhaps other policy recommendations the Physicians Foundation believes would be prudent, uh, for instance, investing in community-based organizations or in additional screenings at physician practices uh, to make sure that we're capturing all of those patients and the structural barriers that they may
4: face? Well, at a basic, very basic level, the rule that you were referring to, which was approved on August 1st, um, that was a ruling by uh, CMS, and it regarded the fiscal year 23 hospital inpatient prospective payment system rule. So what that rule did was incorporate these basic measures into the hospital uh, reporting system starting in fiscal year 23. Uh, You you mentioned getting data from physicians' offices, and I agree with you completely. Um, That's critically important. The Physicians Foundation has also supported the same measures to be adopted by CMS in uh, something called the MIPS program, which is a program of reporting that takes place at the physician's point of care level rather than the hospital system. That is still in a review phase, and we're hoping that a similar ruling will be adopted within the the next uh, four to six weeks, actually, regarding that. So that would be the next piece in getting data from physicians' offices, which is, of course, so important. We don't want to know just about what happens with patients admitted to the hospital. Um, We've uh, released a report in 2021 called Improving America's Healthcare System, recognizing the realities of patients' lives and investing in addressing social drivers of health. And in, in that report, We outline uh, a number of measures, uh, 17 of them altogether, uh, where we think uh, investments, uh, reporting, uh, research efforts should be directed. And they include things like looking at the way physicians and hospitals are reimbursed for care and making sure that incentives in that system are aligned with acknowledging uh, the impact of social drivers of health. Investing in community resources to help address them. Uh, Also, investing in systems that make referrals for patients at the point of care level much more um, organized and up to date so that the resources that are out there in our communities become more available to our patients as their needs are identified. Mm -hmm. I don't think that the healthcare system all by itself can deal with all of our. social problems, but we are in the best position to look at the impact of them on patients' healthcare, and we need to be out there in the lead collecting the data and coming up with solutions to make that better.
3: That's such a great point. I think it does seem like it's going to take a massive collaborative effort and government funding and recognition and uh, just a a cross-industry-wide effort, but... You're right that people on the front lines in healthcare really understand their patients most intimately and have that trusted relationship with them as well to be able to even begin to understand the extent of these barriers and needs.
4: I think you put that extraordinarily well.
3: (laughs) Thank you. What makes you passionate about what you do? I mean, what keeps you going?
4: Oh, I think I'm like uh, every other physician out there. What keeps me passionate about what I do is the time I spend with patients and a feeling that I've helped them feel better in some way. I've helped them negotiate a a crisis of some sort or made their healthcare future better by spending time with them uh, and using the knowledge and skills that I was trained in to make their lives better. That's, that's what motivates all of us. And um, dealing with this huge issue, of course, uh, promises uh, to really bring rewards back to our nation's health. And I see a bright future for finding solutions and, and making our nation's health better.
3: Thank you so much. That's a hopeful note to end on. Uh, thank you for being here. Really appreciate your time.
0: For listening to Podgnosis, I'm Teresa Carey. You can find more news and stories at fiercehealthcare.com. Next week we're going to discuss Medicaid redeterminations and the LGBTQ Task Force. So tune in Wednesday morning to Podgnosis, where healthcare is our beat.